90% of all scientists that have ever been alive are alive today. That's a lot of information, but don't panic. It's not an exact science. Hey, Shannon, how are you? Well, besides this cold, I'm doing pretty well. I'm going to try not to sneeze into the microphone or anything. yep getting ready getting the first round of tests over for classes so i'm doing well i don't know if the students are but (laughs) ah yes midterm time (laughs) exactly what what have you been doing exciting lately well schedule's been getting shoved around a lot lots of things going on and user groups for different pieces of technology and uh, i've actually been doing a lot of consulting work and as part of that i'm actually coming to see you about your painful (laughs) magnetometer i was just gonna get ready to say that oh yeah i've got this consultant coming in and i just uh, but (laughs) i i remembered who i was talking to so i'll complain about that later on (laughs) yeah exactly i can can give you the complaint email address (laughs) you know it's so weird to me uh to think about these sort of things like if we had imagined, you know, 10 years ago or however long ago it was when we met, and then <laughs> to be like, you know, 10 years down the road, you're going to be doing this podcast together, and then you're going to come in and do some consulting for me, like for real work, grown-up work. It seems really funny. <laughs> I know. It is strange. <laughs> uh, well, but, I, but the one common denominator is I still can't get away from working for you. Yeah, that's exactly right. <laughs> As long as those uh, startup funds are still there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, well, you know, I was trying to figure out what we were going to do for this week's show and trying to find some interesting geologic phenomena to talk about. And then nature dropped an event in our lap again. again. There have been more hurricanes, but we're not going to talk about hurricanes again. But there's also been a couple of pretty large earthquakes. Uh, Yes, there certainly has. Uh, This is pretty unbelievable. And this last one hit a little close to home in terms of um, it's in Puebla, and that's really close to a campus that we have, OU in Puebla. So, yeah, this has been really on everybody's mind around here lately, too. And these were big honkers, right? Yeah, so this was a uh, the one that happened most recently. It was magnitude 7.1. That is the moment magnitude. That's the Puebla earthquake. Mm -hmm. And coincidentally, it happened on the 32nd anniversary of the 1985 Mexico City earthquake. That's pretty interesting. Yeah. I mean, coincidentally, but still. (laughs) It is. And we'll get back to to that in a little bit and actually Mm -hmm. how that helped save some lives. Mm -hmm. But before we even talk about the individual earthquakes... I thought we should back up and talk about some of the plate tectonics that are going on in the region. I just can't get away from plate tectonics. That's what my students are getting tested over this week. (laughs) (laughs) It's a moving subject. Oh, I was trying to get one. (laughs) I couldn't think of that that quick. Um, So I'm assuming all these very interesting, and this is a very seismically active area, that there's some interesting plate tectonics occurring here too, right? So what do we have meeting up here to create these? Well, so we've actually got three plates at play here, and two of them, I bet you can guess. Yep, I had North American and Pacific, that's what I would guess, being as we're in looking at Central America. Right, so you've got the Pacific Ocean and the North American continent, but there's also this little segment called the Cocos Plate. (laughs) So I had to look this up because I just don't pay this much attention to these tiny little guys. Um, 
<laughs> so the Cocos Plate, I mean, tiny. He's 2.9 million square kilometers, right? So he's not super tiny. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but where, Geologically where, small. Yes, exactly. So where is the Cocos Plate situated then? Okay, so the Cocos Plate is south of the North American Plate, east of the Pacific Plate, and west of the Caribbean Plate. If you think about Central America, then just to the southwest of it, on the Oceanic, on the Pacific part, is the Cocos Plate. Okay, gotcha. And the Nazca Plate is what produces all the big earthquakes in Chile. It's on the western side of South America. So this is just north of that. It's sort of that little east-west chunk of ocean. Okay, so a little triangle snuggled up to the, the Central American isthmus there, right? Exactly. Okay. And so the Cocos Plate is cruising northeast okay. relative to North America. And so, you know, everything's moving, so we have to use some relative terms here. But <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, relative to North America, the Cocos Plate is going at about 76 millimeters a year. Whoa. <laughs> yeah, it's it's moving. Oh, well, that's cranking. Okay. Goodness. Well, that... Do we have anything else to talk about? I mean, that explains all these earthquakes, right? <laughs> <laughs> right. I mean, it's a, it's a massive amount of strain. Yeah, so, that's unbelievable. Okay. That's, I mean, if if you use very round numbers for aggregate human averages and aggregate plate averages, we're talking something like every time you cut your hair, that's how far this plate's moved. Yeah, well, not my hair. It grows really slow, but I, I get Exactly. You. <laughs> you know, for, for the average person's hair length, which our hair growth rate, which nobody has. Yeah, right. Uh, so <laughs> there's that going on. And then you have sort of that, the western, west of the Gulf of California, that's on the Pacific plate. Mm -hmm. And that's going northwest sliding past the North American plate, which is what we normally think of the big transform junction. Right. Okay. Yep. I've got that. So this is one of those not very clear plate boundaries. It's doesn't fall neatly into, you know, convergent, divergent, or transform. It's kind of where these mix, and this is where plate tectonics gets kind of messy. Yeah. So, I mean, the Cocos is convergent with North American plate, uh, and that's, you've got mountains and volcanic activity and all kinds of stuff from that. Then you have a transform boundary, but then you have this weird sort of triple junction set up mm -hmm. as well. Uh, so there's a lot going on here. And all of that makes Mexico, as you said, very, very seismically active. Yeah. Uh, one of the interesting things I've seen in the media coverage of this is a lot of mislabeling and misreporting. Uh, I've seen the ring of fire misplaced. Oh, I mean, um, that's pretty big. Where can you put it? Where you know what I mean? Uh, to misplace it. <laughs> you you just shift it longitudinally and plot it, and that doesn't look wrong. No, oh, okay, all right, gotcha. <laughs> uh, so there was that. There was lots of talks of this being a subduction earthquake, which we'll get to. That it's not strictly. A subduction earthquake. You can forgive that one a tiny bit, just a little you can, bit. <laughs> you can give that a little bit. Of course, there's the smattering of Richter scale. Which... Yeah, I figured every time I hear that, I just I feel you cringing from a state away. <laughs> uh, I, I I hear it late at night, reverberating. <laughs> yes. So <laughs> there's been lots of and also you know the AGU had this press release about. Seismologists are still puzzling over the connection of some of these multiple large events that have happened mm -hmm. recently. 
whereas another mainstream news agency was running an article that says, Mexico experiences multiple large quakes. We explain why. And, you know, there's a lot of misinformation going around. Right. I, I, I heard a news person, not a science news person, a news person say that all of these quakes are completely unrelated. And, and they just took that as fact and moved on. And I thought, oh, oh, well, that was a very uninformed blanket statement that everyone just believed when they heard it, you know? <laughs> Right. And this is where we as scientists are doing a poor job communicating risk. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So all of us are like balled up in a corner saying fake news, fake news over and over again. But (laughs) we're not really good at telling people what they're getting wrong. Exactly. (laughs) So. (laughs) So that's why we're having this show, right? (laughs) Right. We're trying to clear up some of this and talk a little bit about what happened in these two events, the 1985 event and this year's event. And hopefully, you know, when there are major events, we can do this and slowly work our way around the tectonic plate menagerie of the earth. Right, exactly. Because, I mean, when they move, this is sort of one of those hints as to why these tectonic plates were there in the first place, right? We got all these volcanoes and all these earthquakes that very nicely outline most of the plate boundaries. Right. So I think the best place to start might actually be going back to the Mexico City earthquake of 85. Okay. And so, like you said, this is the exact same day, and that was the 19th of September, uh, 1985, and it happened at 7.17 Central time. Right. So 7.17 local, and this was a very large earthquake, uh, estimated moment magnitude of 8. Wow. That's impressive. And if we're talking about how much shaking's going on, we want to look at the Mercalli scale. Is that correct? Yeah, you can. So the, the Mercalli scale uh, was a nine on this, which is in the violent category. Wow. And and this was really violent. There was a, around 10,000 people dead. I mean, that's the same amount that the hurricane killed in the early 1900s in Galveston, right? And over 30,000 injured. But I'm sure that number is pretty up in the air based on how much damage was occurring right and that was quite a bit yeah and you know i've seen i think the official death toll from this event is somewhere in the neighborhood of five thousand, but that is just found buried and documented oh wow uh the the upper end estimates range to about 15 or eighteen thousand, but ten thousand seems to be the accepted number for this uh so it's very large. And remember, this is, it's 32 years ago. So when I say estimated, <laughs> we had a pretty good idea, right. but we definitely didn't have the instrumentation we did that we do today to really get in depth with it. Right. Oh, was that, a, was that another seismic pun there? No, no. <laughs> um, but it, going on that, I mean, why you care about this is because when you hit these major metropolitan areas, which Mexico City has been for many years, you know, you get a lot of devastation. So over 400 buildings collapsed, 3,000 seriously damaged. And we say seriously damaged, I mean, that's stuff that has to be cleaned up just because you don't want, you know, any tiny aftershock to start taking it down or anything like that. So that's a lot of investment as well. (laughs) Right. And the earthquake was actually... Uh, 350 kilometers, so touch over 200 <laughs> miles from Mexico City. <laughs> That's unbelievable. 
<laughs> so that's quite a ways away. Yeah, and this was a pretty special event in a lot of ways. So we just talked about, well, there's the Cocos Plate subducting between the North American Plate. And we know that very large earthquakes traditionally occur on subduction zones because they have these huge rupture areas. They can have much bigger rupture areas than a transform fault. Right. So therefore, you're going to get a lot more of everything. Right. But this event actually wasn't on the subduction zone. Okay. <laughs> where did, Where was it? It was below the subduction zone. So you've got, <laughs> you've got the Cocos Plate pushing underneath the North American Plate, and that interface where those two are sliding past each other is what I'm going to call the subduction zone Okay, yeah. in mm -hmm. the strictest sense. Really, we'd call that the plate boundary. Right, yeah, okay. So this earthquake actually completely occurred in the downgoing oceanic crust. This was a normal fault in the downgoing plate as it's tearing apart. Wow. So does that mean it was shallower then? So this was a fairly shallow earthquake or no? No, this was pretty deep. Okay. See, uh, I've got I've got my hands making the subduction zone motion, right? And so I would think that if you had a normal fault, it would be shallow. But I guess you've got that whole plate sort of being tugged on, right? And so you've got a lot of actually extensional stress that's occurring on that oceanic plate. Right. The the way you could sort of conceptually model it would be something called slab pole. Right, exactly. Uh, which the geodynamicists will send hate mail I know. about. I know. I, that's why I didn't uh, say it out loud. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> uh, but this was pretty far down on that downgoing plate, and it was actually two events. It was one earthquake, but it had two ruptures, so what we would call a sub-event in it. Okay. And so the first event happens, there's dynamic stress changes going on, a second event triggers, and you have two ruptures running simultaneously. Oh, wow. So they were happening at the same time? Well, I mean, roughly the same time, right? So what, what did that look like then? Uh, so that looked like about three minutes of continuous shaking in Mexico City and about five minutes at the coast. God. So that's crazy to think of because these little, I mean, I say little, but these other earthquakes, you know, you feel like time stretches out. So every time we have one here in Oklahoma, which is, you know, pretty frequently lately, I start counting immediately and it seems like it lasts forever and it only lasts like 10 to 20 seconds. I can't imagine what five minutes would feel like. It's almost like listening to our show. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so painful over such a long amount of time. Right. <laughs> so this is, it produced a very long duration of shaking. And it actually, you know, he said it damaged uh, over 3,000 buildings seriously and uh, hundreds collapsed. And actually, most of those that collapsed turned out to be between six and 15 stories tall. And we'll get back to that mm, in a little bit. That's because, really interesting. Because that turns out to be an important clue. But after that earthquake and this massive loss of life, on the 19th of September, every year, it's a day of remembrance, and there's a national earthquake drill that happens at 11 a.m. local time. Hmm. Okay. I think that earthquake drill probably saved hundreds of lives. Wow. Because, fast forward now, right, 32 years later, what time did the Pueblo earthquake occur this week? About two hours after the drill. Wow. Okay. That's... So everybody had just, in the building that they were in, 
been told, if there's an earthquake, this is where you need to go. This is how you should respond to an earthquake. And two hours later, that was put to the test. That's pretty impressive. And you're probably exactly right. That probably did save a lot of life. Right. And so this one turns out to be a magnitude, uh, moment magnitude 7.1. Okay. And it comes, you know, not long after, on the 7th of this month, we had an 8.1 right. in Mexico as well. Mm-hmm. How far apart were those? I believe it was several hundred kilometers. Okay. Yeah, I thought that other one was further further away than that, closer to the coast. But, I mean, so, I mean, are they related? I know that's what a lot of people start to say when these events, especially these really big events, start to come pretty close to each other, you know, that one triggers it or something triggered all these earthquakes. I mean, that's a pretty big debate, correct? Well, I mean, when you have an event, you're definitely changing the stress field. Right. And when you have an event as large as an 8.1, you're changing the stress field a lot over right. a large area. Mm-hmm. So to say they're unrelated is probably a stretch. Right. Uh, to say that we know how they're related, especially right now, is also a stretch. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so uh, it's it's somewhere in the middle, which people don't like that gray area, so it probably doesn't make a very good news story. It makes an excellent science paper though it sure does uh, it sure does <laughs> <laughs> so was this 7.1 moment magnitude i mean is it what does this look like tectonically was this sort of the same thing where where did this happen this yeah this was basically the same thing this was in the downgoing oceanic crust it's a normal faulting event and it was about 50 kilometers down which is about 30 miles in yankee units <laughs> okay yeah that's pretty far down <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Fine. <laughs> so it, it was relatively deep. And one thing that I don't think people realize is we always plot earthquakes as points on a map. <laughs> uh-huh. And they're not. Yeah. <laughs> earthquakes are slip on an area. And in an event like this, the area that slipped is probably about 50 by 20 kilometers. So that's about 30 by 13 miles. That's a big chunk. Yeah. Yeah. And the slip is not trivial no. on this, on this <laughs> no. piece. I mean, in all of our defenses, if you're drawing the globe, that's going to be a point. I'm just going to throw that out there. <laughs> it's true. And there are, you know, some maps out there. And the epicentral lap by Dr. Ammon that we've had on the show before Mm-hmm. does a pretty good job of trying to scale the points to where they approximately represent the area. Oh, that's really neat. You don't see that done very often. Right. And now they may not represent the shape, of course. Right, yeah. But you get an idea of the area. Yeah. Uh, and so this earthquake had a peak ground acceleration of about 0.11 Gs. That's pretty good. Yeah. And... These these numbers are going to be old by the time this show airs yeah. because they're probably old by the time we're reading them. Yeah, no kidding. And this was not made that long ago in terms of the document. Right. Uh, but there had been about 44 collapsed buildings and about uh, 54 to 100 deaths. Right. Yeah, I'd heard 110 just about an hour ago. So somewhere around right. there. And so we're looking at a couple orders of magnitude smaller loss of life. Mm-hmm. And an order of magnitude fewer collapsed buildings, which is great. Yes. Yeah, it is. And I wonder how much of those are, you know, new versus old buildings, which I'm sure is all going to be data that will be sussed out, you know, in the coming months. 
Oh, absolutely. And I think we're going to learn a lot about, uh, I mean, we learned some about building construction in 85. Mm-hmm. Now we have another chance to sort of rerun that experiment. All right. Yeah, exactly. Uh, unfortunately, it's in a very populated area. And right. this region's really active. Uh, in the last hundred years, there have been 19 magnitude six and a half or greater earthquakes in the area. Yeah, that's pretty impressive. So once every 10 years mm-hmm. on the low side, if we're, we're rounding to 10 and 100. Uh, right, yeah. Or every five years, really. Right. So pretty often. Mm-hmm. Which, I mean, is not good, but it's probably good in terms of people being aware of what they need to do in addition to this yearly remembrance drill as well. Right, and some of the videos from this, I mean, you you can see the buildings oscillating and you can sit there and count the period. That's unbelievable. Uh, You see facades and glass falling and uh, it's really, it looks like it would be quite a harrowing thing Mm -hmm. to live through Mm -hmm. now this one didn't last nearly as long though did it no the duration of shaking wasn't quite as long uh but both of these earthquakes are affected by the local geology which in seismology is something we call a side effect (laughs) of course you geophysicist (laughs) would just call the local geology a side effect (laughs) <laughs> well you've got you know instrument responses <laughs> much more the filter that's the earth and you have side effects which nice. are those pesky things that you filter out exactly dang rocks right so, so what is so now i i heard a couple of um articles about this as well being espoused and so what makes mexico city so weird well so now we have to go way back uh <laughs> <laughs> to Spanish conquistadors. Oh, nice. Okay. Yeah. So Mexico City was actually originally built on an island. Okay. Big and it was lake. an island in a lake called Lake Texcoco. Okay. Great. But there's not a lake there now. No, that's because the conquistadors wanted to keep building the city larger and larger, so they drained it. Oh, man. Geoengineering. 1500 style, right? <laughs> exactly. So... <laughs> The the lake was drained, and the city kept on building out. Okay. Well, lakes normally are going to have a pretty deep sedimentary layer, right? That squishy stuff that you like to look at. Right. <laughs> yes. <laughs> the most exciting rocks in the world. Yes, you're actually right. Um, right. <laughs> and so this is really, I mean, this is a big lake. So that squishy stuff can go down really far, which doesn't seem like a great substrate for building on. No, I mean, we're talking tens of meters here. Right. Like and 30 I mean, meters in places. Also around Puebla and Mexico City, there's a lot of volcanoes and ash and water. Yeah, that's also not very stable. So you get layers of sand and ash and they're damp. And oh. then you build a city on top of it. And then when you start shaking them, that just is liquefaction waiting to happen. Exactly. <laughs> oh, <laughs> man. So, and and if you don't know what I mean by liquefaction, all you have to do is search that on YouTube, and then you'll never step on wet sand ever again in your life because it's terrifying. It's also true. <laughs> yes. Uh, and so one of, the, one of the things to keep in mind here is imagine the idealized geophysical model of uh, I scoop out I make a concrete block, and while it's still wet, I take like an ice cream scooper, 
and I scoop out some of the concrete so that I have a crater-looking depression. That's going to be my lake bed. Okay. And then I put some sand in that. Mm-hmm. The velocity of the seismic waves in that concrete block is going to be pretty high. Right. The velocity of those seismic waves in that sand is going to be pretty, pretty low. low, right? <laughs> so the seismic waves come up, they hit that interface. They have to slow down when they travel in the sand. So that means more and more of them are bunching up, if you will. Again, mm-hmm. this is not proper <laughs> wave physics here. Yes. <laughs> uh, but you, you basically get an amplification of the shaking. Okay. And so this is happening on a very large scale, which the place that's being amplified is where all the people are. It's true. <laughs> and this is not an uncommon thing. Look at Seattle. Oh, I don't want to. I'm going to Seattle in a month. Thanks, though. <laughs> Right. <laughs> Maybe we should do a show on the the Pacific Northwest. Let's and not. <laughs> the, the impending subductions on earthquakes. Uh, you know, we watch a little video from the BBC about the Cascadia megathrust earthquake, and there's all this super dramatic music, and it's super terrifying. And I sat there watching it for the 900th time and thought, this was really dumb. I'm about to go here. <laughs> now I'm really scared. Just remember the 1700 event left that's deposits exact- in Japan. Yeah, that's exactly what the video is about. <laughs> so <laughs> anyway, back to Mexico City and this lake bed. The other interesting thing about it is the size of the lake bed happens to have a resonant frequency that is a period of about two and a half seconds. Okay. And so I'm guessing that this is going to go back to why these mid-height 6 to 15-story structures are affected the worst. Right, because 6 to 15-story structures, that's about a two-second period. Yeah, that's unbelievable. So the lake bed is perfectly tuned to knock down low to mid-height dwellings. Oh, that's crazy. This is why things like, you know, you should pay attention in math class. Right. Yeah, Mm mm-hmm. Yeah, that's crazy. So that's where you're going to get the most sort of harmonic disturbance. And then now you've got really bad stuff happening. I wonder if you could get away with making everything, you know, less than six stories just to avoid this. I mean, that would probably help reduce the damage some, but you've got a lot of people in Mexico City. Yeah, you sure do. (laughs) I was just going to look up how many, you know, skyscrapers, but I'm going to guess there's quite a bit of very tall buildings there. Exactly. So Mm -hmm. this is an engineering challenge that we have to address by using things like dampers on the top of the buildings or floating foundations where we let the ground shake around us and hopefully let the inertia of the building keep us somewhat stable. That's so crazy to me that that can happen. Like you can shake a building and it still come out okay. Uh, yes, and some of the really tall structures, I'll put a link in the show notes to watching, I believe it's a building in Taiwan, where there's a large hanging mass damper at the top of the building. And from a teleseismic earthquake, one that's relatively far away, mm-hmm. you can watch this start <gasps> moving as the surface waves come through oh, and help stabilize wow. the building. Wow, that's unbelievable. I don't think I've ever seen that. Yeah, that, that's interesting. Yeah, so there's a lot of engineering that we can do to help this. But it, right now, really, in the situation they're in, it's just going to take a lot of emergency responders and hopefully trying to get people out of the rubble and try to save as many people as they can right 
Right, exactly. And I mean, as awful as it is, at least we're gonna we're gonna learn something. So the next time this happens, you know, it hopefully that death number will be even lower because we've learned something and we've learned the importance as we always stress on here of, you know, engineering is one thing, but you've gotta look outside that, you know. Seismic analysis is one thing, but you gotta look outside that. You gotta bring in the rocks and talk about, you know, these depositional environments, something I'm sure some engineer never thought he would be talking about. Right. But it's obviously ridiculously important when we're talking about, you know, building in this seismically active area. Right. I mean, this is sort of like Ralph Waldo Emerson said, one of my favorite geology geophysics quotes of we learn geology the morning after the earthquake. That's exactly right. That's the that's the quote I have on my first my earthquake slide when I um, lecture in intro geology. Yep. So it's. It's been quite the the season, really, of natural disasters. We've yeah. had hurricanes Harvey, Irma. Yeah, and we then... had Jose and now Maria. Maria battering down as we are recording this right now on Puerto Rico. Right. And then a couple of large, you know, magnitude seven plus earthquakes in the last few weeks. Mm-hmm. Yep. That's very, very interesting. And you can see why people, you know would have thought a long time ago that catastrophes, this thing that we call catastrophism, um, was the way that the Earth changes, right? So sometimes you go through these periods of quiescence and uniformitarianism or the the thought that geology just slowly happens due to everyday things um, is sort of the norm. And then you have this stuff happens, which radically changes uh, the landscapes that these disasters are occurring in. Exactly. And, you know, I go back to our interview with Lynn, where she's looking at things that occur over long time scales, like climate, and then looking at an individual rainstorm. Right. That That is the span that geology cares about. Yeah, right. Yep, exactly right. She passes around. It's so great. Her passing around that rock the first day of class, and it's got raindrop impressions on it. And so we talk about the difference between weather and climate, and you've got that, and that's just unbelievable to me. Exactly. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I think we should probably go ahead and move on to everybody's favorite segment show of the show, Fun Paper Friday. Yay! So, speaking of rheology of the earth. This fun paper comes to us uh, as a recipient of the 2017 Ig Nobel, who listener Daryl pointed out that the Ig Nobels had been announced. So I dutifully went to the page. And of course, <laughs> a, this paper by M.A. Farden called On the Rheology of Cats <laughs> stuck out. <laughs> I love it because he's from Lyon, France. <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah, this is fantastic. Um, you know, it never fails that I think you generally find these ones that always usurp my favorite figures, and this one's going to stand for a long time. The figures <laughs> in this paper are amazing. <laughs> Imagine every cat picture you've ever seen on Facebook or Twitter, and that's a panel in this paper. Exactly. It's so true. Even broken down by age of cats, and then we start to talk about the vorticity of cats. But that's this paper is in the... Um, the Society of Rheology's Bulletin, right? So um, so that's what we're talking about, is basically how cats flow. Yes, and it starts out with the, uh, the famous quote that everything flows and nothing <laughs> abides. 
everything gives way and nothing stays fixed. And is that true? Well, so. no. <laughs> when it well, <laughs> yes, when it comes to most cats, I think was the was the answer. <laughs> right, but the question is, you know, if you look at something at time one, look at the same thing at time two. Time two could be a minute later, an hour later, a day later, or a century later. Again, time scales. Mm-hmm. Is it fluid? So, are rocks solid? Mm, sort of. <laughs> I think if you've listened to our podcast for any amount of time, you'll hear me espouse greatly that the dynamics are the exact same for rocks as they are for clouds, you know, just different time scales. So, yes. Right. And so the purpose of the study, they said, was they saw on BoardPanda.com, which <laughs> says that somebody was uh, clicking on some clickbait links during work hours, that they saw the title, Cats Are Liquids. And they decided to evaluate this using the tools of modern rheology. I love this because obviously this is really funny and silly. And this is one of those things that non-scientists will look upon and say, wow, what a waste of your money. You know, but who knows what would come out of this besides me laughing hysterically at the figures. (laughs) Right. And so as it turns out, this was done to, uh, as a celebration, we'll get to that towards the end, but, uh, this does have some pretty solid rheology in it. You know, they talk about a lot of these non-dimensionalized relaxation times and Struhall numbers and Reynolds numbers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a little bit of geology that came back to me. Um, so first he he defines the Deborah number, which is the relaxation time over the time scale of the experiment, right? And so he said generally, you know, these time scales are going to be seconds to minutes, except for, so that's, you know, how long it takes the cat to react to the vessel you're trying to shove it into. (laughs) And (laughs) except in the case of older cats, which might take more like hours. (laughs) (laughs) Well, so no, I thought that it was the opposite of that. I thought the older cats would relax quickly, but kittens were energetic. Oh, oh, okay. Yeah, you're, you're right. You're absolutely right. I got my Deborah number mixed up. Sorry. (laughs) Oh, no, no worries. Uh, This is, (laughs) There's a surprising amount of thought that went into this, and he also notes that cats are difficult because they're an active rheological material. They're not like rock or tar or mm-hmm. but, I anything mean, like that. But, I mean, really, you could probably come up with, I mean, you could have similar materials to that, too, though, that are, you know, re- more reactive. So, see, I- I'm trying to put it in the larger scientific context. <laughs> Right. And so there are some photos uh, in figure one that demonstrate cats conforming into different shapes, though that on a short time scale, they appear solid, such as jumping, walking, bouncing, etc. <laughs> yes, exactly. Uh, and then in figure two, there are some examples of different uh, cat rheologies. <laughs> this one was fantastic. um so there's that this is a very classic cat picture of the cat that's in the he's basically in the muffin top cat he's in a basket that's too small for him and it says cat on a super philodophobic surf substrate showing a high contact angle (laughs) (laughs) as opposed to a super hydrophobic surface where the water would beat up and not want to stay on it kind of wax a waxed car surface (laughs) that's sort of what this cat looks like (laughs) exactly Oh, that's hilarious. Um, there's a cat that's sort of squished in between these different metal rods, so little pieces of him, you know, are hanging down where he's sleeping, and so spreading of a cat on a very rough substrate. 
<laughs> right. So think about that. You know, silly putty. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Exactly. Drooping over something. Uh, my favorite was the experimental part. Uh, C. There is a cat in a jar with a large opening. They say tilt a jar experiment to find the yield stress of the kitten. <laughs> Oh, gosh, this is great. Um, I, I like that he did talk about when he's, you know, describing this Deborah numbers. And so, you know, Deborah number less than one, cat seems liquid. We're not going to talk about the gaseous states of cats. Right. He says, yeah, we tend to ignore, ignore thixotropic behavior. So that right. was that was one I had to um, had to look up. So, you know, that's where you've got time-dependent shear thinning property, right? So gels or fluids that are really viscous will begin to flow when shaken or agitated. <laughs> so, right. <laughs> we're not going to take that into account, which I thought was wise. <laughs> yes. Shaking a cat is never a good idea. <laughs> yeah, exactly. For you or the cat. And pointing out that the reason they're ignoring the gaseous state is because gases expand to fill the available space, the available volume, whereas liquids don't change volume, but they change shape to fit in whatever volume they're in so that cats are really more liquid because thank goodness they don't expand. <laughs> you know, I would, I really want to fight this. I actually made a little note right here because I have a long haired cat and I swear she expands all over the place. <laughs> but <laughs> anyway. <laughs> yes. So uh, then let's see, we go through some more math about viscosity. Uh, most of that is relatively uh, standard. <laughs> the wetting and general tribology of cats has not progressed enough to give a definitive answer to the capillary dependence of the feline relaxation time. <laughs> right. <laughs> I thought that was pretty good. <laughs> yes. So and then they do some ketchup comparisons, for example. Uh, <laughs> yeah. But they say it's unclear what generates this superphilia phobicity. <laughs> uh, though that the roughness of the cat's fur seems dominant as they don't like things that tend to uh, smooth the fur, such as water. Right. Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> yes. Oh, these are so good. <laughs> it is. And then, so in the PDF that's linked, this is an open paper, but since it's in a newsletter, you have to scroll. There's a continued on, sort of like a newspaper. Yes, yes. Uh, and then we go on to start talking about flow instabilities. <laughs> which of course is illustrated by a cat rotating in a jar <laughs> right so you put the cat in the jar it fills the jar and then it starts sort of walking around or spinning in there which starts getting into everybody's favorite thing turbulence and chaotic flows <laughs> oh yeah i really love that <laughs> helical flow in cats like i feel like when i teach my river segment that i could i could bring this paper into into play right because <laughs> it's yeah. nice to talk about vorticity because you're you know turning this cat around in a jar right so again we start diving into dimensionless numbers and only fluid dynamics folks can love like the reynolds weissenberg number the pecklet number just the plain old reynolds number so yep. ratio of inertial to non-inertial forces on the cat. I feel like so many geologists are scared of just the plain old Reynolds number, and that's exactly how he describes it in here. Oh, there's this usual Reynolds number. Right. <laughs> oh, this is great. So uh, basically what we're looking at here then is if you draw an, an omega vector, an axis of rotation, 
then there's going to be some force and accelerations in the normal. So you can look at things like if the cat is purely elastic, then you're talking about a hoop stress as a result of the centripetal force. Okay. And that is what drives the instability. There you go. Right. And if you go uh, more non-elastic, things can get a little bit more complicated. (laughs) As always. Right. Which cats are probably somewhere in between, like everything, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, (laughs) So I was going to ask you, they talk about very recent experiments from Japan suggest that we should not see cats as isolated fluid systems, but as able to transfer and absorb stresses from their environment. I mean, that sounds like a real study. <laughs> well, so this has reference to the cat cafes. Exactly. <laughs> so I thought that sounds like a real study until I read the next sentence. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, I just assumed this was something where you were really studying cats and how they affect the environments around them. But he says, indeed, in Japan, they have cat cafes where stressed out customers can pet kitties and purr their worries away. Right, so we're talking about emotional stress, not the physical (laughs) (laughs) quantity of stress. (laughs) That's beautiful. (laughs) So those are sometimes related. (laughs) And as always in so many of our fun papers, the acknowledgments are fantastic. Right. (laughs) So no animals were harmed. (laughs) Harmed with the H in parentheses. (laughs) Mm Mm-hmm. And also, he gives a shout-out to his colleagues for providing a reliable technique to load Felis caddis in different geometries, which is, of course... One, bring an empty box. <laughs> Two, wait. <laughs> Illustrations at these web addresses, including YouTube video. Ah, I love it. WeKnowMemes.com. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> slash 2012 slash 11 slash how to catch a cat. Yes. Uh, <laughs> oh, this is beautiful. And it was written in honor of somebody named Gareth's 50th birthday and his Bingham Award, which the Bingham effect is a real interesting rheological effect observed in metals that we should talk about sometime. Yes, right, exactly. Oh, this is beautiful. Um, so that was actually a really good read because I, I would totally assign this if I were talking about, you know, these kind of flow states in any class that I teach. Right, because though it is sort of funny, uh, there's a lot of good math in here. All right, yeah, exactly. Really and it's <laughs> it's nothing that a uh, a sophomore level fluid dynamics class wouldn't cover. Mm-hmm. Yep, I thought so too. Ah, that's fantastic. <laughs> Thanks, and Nobel. It's pictures of kitties. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Something I would be doing anyway, but now it looks like real research. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> oh, beautiful. So that is your fun paper for this week. I'm sure we will be skimming the Ig Nobels some more. Oh, yes. <laughs> uh, but we also have some fun paper suggestions in the hopper from you, our listeners. If you have a fun paper suggestion that you would like to send us or would like to contribute some data to studying the superphiliophobicity <laughs> effect on cats or would like to measure the relaxation time of your cat in a vessel of its choosing, we would be very interested in hearing your results. Shannon, how can they get a hold of us? Oh, send us your kitty pictures. <laughs> Show at don'tpanicgeocast.com or um, send those to us on Twitter at don'tpanicgeo. I will appreciate them more. I'm at Shannon Doolin. <laughs> John is <laughs> at geo underscore Lehman. 
And you can find us on our Slack channel, softwareunderground.org. We're in the swung.rocks on the Don't Panic channel. And until next week, remember, don't panic. It's not an exact science. Any opinions, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed are solely ours and do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers or funding agencies.